Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come Upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This last week I got a note in my inbox from Jim Dennison. He has a forum and a blog where he addresses a lot of contemporary issues. And he said something remarkable. He said that a number of Americans were surveyed and 79% of Americans surveyed, they wanted more emphasis of Jesus at Christmas time. Only 18% said, we don't want Jesus at Christmas time. And I thought, who are these people? When asked if, Christian, if Christmas activities should include a visit to church services, 63% agree. Further, 70% of Americans said Christmas would be better if the focus was on Jesus. It shouldn't come as a shock even to people who don't describe themselves as religious or as Christians that they want something more. Do you know people who have come to see the holiday? as synthetic and superficial, materialistic, phony, meaningless. Chuck Swindoll wrote, quote, Christmas comes each year to draw people in from the cold like tiny frightened sparrows shivering in the winter cold. Many live their lives on the barren branches of heartbreak and disappointment and loneliness. Lost in thoughts of shame and self-pity and guilt and failure. 
One blustery day follows another, and the only company they keep is with fellow strugglers who land on the same branches, confused and unprotected. We try so hard to attract them into the warmth. Week after week, church bells ring, choirs sing, preachers preach, lighted churches send out their beacon, but nothing seems to bring in those who need warmth the most, unquote. I like that. What indeed will bring them in? What will bring them in? An invitation to church or an explanation from the Bible? And for many people, for whatever reason... The invitation and the explanation seems to lead them from one cold place to another. The human heart is spiritually empty and barren and cold apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, apart from hope. So how can we have a heart full of joy? How can we have a heart that is whole and well? I'm going to suggest to you that we have to allow the Holy Spirit to overshadow our hearts. We have to believe the Holy Spirit can and will work a miracle of redemption in our hearts. We have to believe and confess that we too are the Lord's servants willing to do what the Lord would have us to do. And so our passage, this passage begins with a message from heaven in verses 29 through 33. And the message is filled with assurance and comfort. And the assurance and comfort continues with an announcement that Mary is going to give birth to Jesus, the Messiah whose kingdom will come and reign and never end. And the angel says that the baby will be great. And we know that babies are born every single day. And we'd like to believe that every single baby is special. And that a child's birth prompts all kinds of emotions. And it's interesting to me, How a child's birth can bring joy to so many, but bring disappointment to others who've never had a baby or or who have lost a baby. Instead of a time of joy, it becomes a time of sorrow. As you can imagine, all kinds of people respond in all kinds of different ways to all kinds of different announcements. But Jesus' birth is going to be different from every other human birth before and after. And remember, Mary is a virgin. And so because she's a virgin, the announcement and the coming of this baby is going to require a miracle. And for many people who make their way out of the cold and into a church or into a service or into a conversation, they too need a miracle. Their heart is broken and their soul is empty and it is black and they have sinned and they come in from out of the cold and they know the reality of who they are and what's going on inside of them and they know too that 
unless there's a miracle that takes place in their heart, nothing is going to ever change in their life. And so the passage begins with a salutation. And it ends with a declaration of submission. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary says. I'm willing to accept what he wants. In verse 38. And so for us, the same is true. There has to be a declaration where we say, you know what, I'm willing, I'm willing, I'm willing to submit to God's plan and purpose. I'm willing to submit to what he has for me. So it begins with a great message. Look again in verse 26. It says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. We know that that means six months have gone by since the angel appeared to Zacharias in chapter 1. It began in verse 5 where the angel appears to Zacharias and is is going to announce yet another supernatural birth. John the Baptist. Elizabeth is pregnant and six months have gone by. By the way, the Bible rarely, rarely, rarely mentions the names of the angelic visitors. One angelic visitor that's mentioned in the Old Testament is named Michael. His name means who is like God. This second angel, his name Gabriel, means the voice or the message or that one who has the voice of God. That's what Gabriel's name means. Gabriel appears. And you'll note in the text it says he doesn't appear on his own. He's sent by God with a message from God. In verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. In that culture and society, betrothal had all of the legal implications and strength of a very real marriage. His name is Joseph. He's from the house of David. The virgin's name is Mary. And in verse 28, it says, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. The angel refers to her as highly favored one. The reason why this becomes important to each and every one of us is because the angel says to her, she can be and is the recipient of grace and privilege. Again, this is important because the angel doesn't worship her. The angel doesn't pray to her. The angel doesn't bow down to her. She's not the source of grace. She's the benefactor of grace. Grace comes from God. Grace comes from Jesus. Grace comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the angel does call her highly favored one. The angel does call her blessed among women. It's not inappropriate for you to do the same or for me to do the same. In verse 29, it says, but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying 
and considered what manner of greeting this was, you can imagine she's troubled because it's not every day that an angel shows up. And it's not every day that an angel shows up with an angelic message. And it's, it's not every day that, it, that the angel shows up because in that culture and society, particularly in the Old Testament, when an angel showed up, it usually wasn't good news. It was usually bad news. If all of a sudden you are in your room and a bright being of light shows up in your room, the first thought is, that's going to be on your mind is, I guess this, I'm done here. I guess whatever used to be my life is now over. But the angel does have a special message for her. In verse 30 it says, Do not be afraid, Mary. The implication being that's exactly what she was. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel's message contains seven imperatives, seven things that will of necessity come to pass. In this singular message from the angel, the commands include the incarnation. You will conceive, in verse 31, the designation of a name. You shall call his name Jesus, in verse 31. The exaltation, he will be great in verse 32. The determination, he shall be called the son of the highest in verse 32. The identification, the Lord will give him a throne. The throne of his father David in verse 32. The dominion is described. He shall reign in the house of Jacob forever. And then the eternality or the continuation of his kingdom. There will be no end. Think in this one message. This one message by the angel. The real humanity of Jesus is described. The real humanity of the Messiah. You will conceive. The real deity and mission of the Messiah. You will call his name Yeshua or Joshua. His name means the Lord Jehovah who saves or Jehovah is the savior. His essential greatness. He will be great in his person. He will be great in the work that he does. He will be great in his mission. He will be great in the destiny. He will be great in his identity as the son of God. He's called the son of the highest. And in, the, in this language, the highest is the superlative. The idea being if you're the son of the highest, there's no higher. It doesn't go any higher than the self-existent transcendent being who is called God. This son is the son of God. It speaks of God's 
transcendence and his power and his omnipotence. And so he's great in his title to the throne of David, which establishes his claim as the Jewish Messiah and the Messiah of the world. He is great in his everlasting and universal kingdom. He rules over the house of Jacob forever. And the text itself says that his kingdom will have no end. I want you to think about this for just a minute. In verse 31 and verse 32, at the beginning of the verse, there's a reference to his first coming. At the end of verse 32 and in verse 33, there's a reference to his second coming. All in this singular message. All in the singular message that the Lord is with us. At this time, we sing, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. You know what that name means. The Lord is with us. That's the message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is that God is going to interrupt humanity and intervene in our lives. That's the message. He comes from heaven to the earth. He comes from the Father. He comes willingly, not only into this broken world and this difficult world and this empty world. What you have to think about is that he's coming not only into the world, but he's going to come into your world. He's going to breathe our air. He is going to eat our food. He is going to feel our pain. He is going to know our sorrows. He is going to bear our burdens. He's going to die for our sin. And think about it. Don't be afraid. He doesn't come into the world to frighten us or terrorize us or even to condemn us. And now we understand what Jesus meant when he said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. God doesn't show up and Jesus doesn't show up in order to ruin your life or terrify you, but to remind you that there's the possibility of comfort and there's the possibility of forgiveness and there's the possibility of safety and hope. And when I was preparing this message, my eye and my heart and the sum and the substance of me sort of focused on verse 32 where it says, he will be great. And I wondered as I read the text, did Jesus or did Mary hear the angel's words? And we know that she did. Because Mary will remember this most important message and relate it to Luke who writes this gospel. But the text seems to indicate that she hears these words, but the focus of of the angel's message is you shall conceive. Because she's a virgin. And people might think that if you grew up in Nazareth in Hicktown, If you never had the benefit of 
a higher education, that you might be a victim of myth and mythology. But Mary is not an idiot. She knows that virgins don't give birth to children without something else. But the text refers to him as great. He will be great. Paul will refer to Jesus as our great God and Savior in Titus chapter 2 verse 13. Jesus is great in love and he is great in character because he's holy. He's great in creation. According to Colossians, he is the creator. Everything that exists, exists because he made it. In Ephesians 2, 4, it says, But God, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Paul writes that this great Jesus, who is the great Savior, who is great in mercy and love, is capable of taking something that is dead and making it alive again. Jesus is great in his being because he's the God and and Savior. He is great in the way he acts in love. He is great in salvation and grace that he provides. He is great in power. And earlier, remember when we were going through Matthew's gospel, we we read where Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. The people sat in darkness and they saw a great light. Jesus comes into the world and the darkness dissipates. Jesus is the great rock on which we can stand and the great shepherd who provides us with comfort. But Jesus is also great in his splendor and majesty because like we're studying in the book of Hebrews on Wednesdays, he is the great high priest and he is the everlasting king. He is great because he reveals the father who is the image of God. Jesus is great because he's the central cause of creation. All things are created by him in Colossians 1.16. Jesus is great because he's the central figure of human history when Jesus comes into the world we define everything that took place in terms of everything that happened before he comes and then everything that happens after he comes in John chapter 1 verse 18 it says no man has seen God at any time but the only begotten son he has revealed him We live in a world where we measure greatness a whole lot differently. When God measures greatness, the greatness of an individual, he doesn't put the measuring tape around their head. He puts the measuring tape around their heart. How do you measure greatness? Jesus is great in mercy. He is great in compassion. He is great in comfort. Many years ago, prior to the Depression, there was a man named Dr. James Allen Francis who wrote a short bit of prose that has been often quoted. He wrote, He was born in an obscure village, the child 
of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter's shop. Until he was 30, when public opinion turned against him, he never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city, perhaps with the exception of Jerusalem. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 His friends ran away and one of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and he went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves and while dying his executioners gambled for his clothing. The only property that he had on the earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all of the parliaments that ever sat, all of the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as this solitary life. No wonder the angel could say, he will be great. But there's also a great mystery. Look at verse 34. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be? (laughs) Since I don't know a man. And the angel answered her and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Albert, Alfred Korsbeski said, There are two ways to slide easily through life. Namely to believe everything. Or to doubt Everything, he said, both ways save us from thinking. The first person ever to question the virgin birth was the Virgin Mary. How can this be? Since I've never known a man. The so called skeptic Bishop Spong, who is an apostate heretic who has walked away from both Christ and Christianity, who is the perfect description of the person who went out from among us because he was never of us, wrote, in time the virgin birth, he's from Ireland, in time the virgin birth, A count will join Adam and Eve and the story of the cosmic ascension as clearly recognized mythological elements in our faith tradition, whose purpose was not to describe a literal event, but to capture the transcendent dimensions of God in earthbound words and concepts of first century human beings, unquote. Contrast Spong's statement With the angel's statement. 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. And therefore the Holy One is to be born will be called the Son of God. The angel draws our attention to the fact that the Virgin Mary understands that a virgin birth is going to require a miracle. But Spong doesn't believe in miracles. By the way, to just simply say, I don't believe in miracles does not affirm that they, that they exist or disaffirm that they don't exist. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years earlier, writes, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The angel draws our attention to the fact that the virgin birth is first and foremost not a statement about the virgin, but rather a statement about God and what kind of a God that he is and what kinds of things that he can do. And some have brought controversy to the word virgin in the Hebrew text, yet Jewish scholars in the second century BC unanimously translates the Hebrew word into the very specific word parthenos, which is the Greek word that specifically describes a virgin. The church fathers understood this completely and confessed I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The ancient Greeks dismissed such a thought as an absurdity. Plato wrote, quote, Never can man and God meet. Plato would think that if there is such a thing as God, if there is such a thing as this powerful, transcendent, self-existent being who creates all other things, that whatever he is and whatever we are, are so completely distant that they could never come together. But the angel Gabriel, in effect, says, you're wrong. Socrates was a pretty smart guy, and Plato was a pretty smart guy. Aristotle was a pretty smart guy. But the angel who comes from heaven says, you're wrong. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. The Holy One is to be born, will be called the Son of God. And if God could or would become a man, wouldn't you expect him to be born under the most unusual circumstances? C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man, unquote. Os Guinness said, quote, The fact is that the greatest mystery of all, the incarnation, comes at the very beginning and is the central reason why we believe in God. We can't explain it. There is the beginning of the mystery of faith. But because of the evidence, neither can we explain it away. There is the beginning of the rationality of faith, unquote. He's basically saying it is not irrational 
to believe in a virgin birth. The main objection, the main objection to the virgin birth of Jesus is the criticism that miracles just don't happen. But no one, no one, no one reading the Bible fairly can deny that there is repeated, repeated miracles. If you can believe the very first sentence in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, all the rest of the Bible becomes fairly easy to believe. The Bible teaches that miracles do happen. The Bible teaches the pre-existence of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was, I am, Philippians 2, 5 and 11, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, when Jesus came into the world, it wasn't like other births. Jesus is not some newly created individual, but he is the eternal God, and in order to be born into the world, it would require a supernatural intervention, and it would also require a sinless nature. One of the central teachings of the New Testament is the sinlessness of Jesus from the moment the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and Jesus is conceived in Mary's womb until the moment that he draws his last breath on Calvary's cross. Jesus is without sin. Jesus is without sin. And the reason why he is without sin and he is the sacrifice without sin is because a sacrifice Savior is going to require sinlessness. He is going to have to have the credentials that you don't have. Remember what we said earlier? In order for me to go to heaven, in order for me to be cleansed, in order for me to be forgiven, in order for the impossibility of my wickedness to go away, It's going to require a miracle. Jesus would have no claim to David's throne if he was, in fact, the biological son of Joseph. According to the prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 22, verses 28 through 30, there would be no king in Israel who was a direct descendant of King Jeconiah. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, it relates that Joseph is a direct descendant from the line of Jeconiah. Jesus would have been born under a cursed lineage. And so the virgin birth is both a historical fact and a spiritual necessity. And it's going to take a historical fact and a spiritual necessity For your life to be different and for your heart to be different and your circumstances to be different. And so the angel breaks the news to Mary that Elizabeth, that's her relative, is already pregnant. And from this passage we learn that their relatives... This great miracle, look what it says in verse 36. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her, who is called barren. Can you imagine that's your nickname in heaven? Oh yeah, she's the lady who can't have children. 
You see, we laugh, but remember in that culture and society, it was a great shame and it was a great heartache to not be able to have children. But there's a reason why the great miracle is being announced. And there's a reason why the angel's even saying it. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a child in her old age. And in the sixth month for her who was called barren. And and Mary must have thought, that's not possible. That's not possible. Old ladies don't have children. She's in that time in her life where she should be somebody's grandma. Grandma. But the reason why the angel says it is in verse 37. For with God, nothing will be impossible because the moment that an angel shows up and the moment that the message is in order for things to be different, it's going to require a miracle. There's something inside of us that wants to believe whether or not a miracle is even possible. And so the angel says, not only are miracles possible, but certain because with God all things are possible. In what sense? How can someone so empty be filled and so dark be filled with light and so guilty be exonerated? G.K. Chesterton said, if a man is a fool for believing in a creator, then he's a fool for believing in a miracle, but not otherwise. The implication being that if you have enough faith to really believe that there is such a thing as a God who create the heavens and the earth, then does it take that much difficulty for you to believe that this God could intervene in time and space? Billy Graham wrote, a miracle is an event beyond the power of any known physical law. He wrote, it's a spiritual occurrence produced by the power of God, a marvel, a wonder. Augustine said, I never have any difficulty believing in miracles since I've experienced the miracle of a change in my own heart. The person most likely to believe in a miracle is the one who's been changed from the inside out. Someone who's experienced that grace, that mercy. Someone who has prayed that prayer and couldn't believe it when God showed up and changed their heart. In verse 38 it says, Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Look at the statement again. Behold the maidservant of the Lord. The word translated maidservant is the feminine form of a Greek word, doulos. Doulos is a slave by choice. Doulos is the title of a person who mentally, emotionally, and physically makes the decision to voluntarily enter into service. Do you understand what's happening? Mary places herself at God's disposal. Mary is in effect with this statement of submission basically saying, whatever you want me to do, Whatever you have for me, 
Whatever you want from me, I'm willing to do it. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Imagine you need a miracle. And God says, I'm willing to work a miracle in your life. I'm willing to make you different. I'm willing to wash you and cleanse you. I'm willing to qualify you for heaven. The outcome for Mary, the moment that she says, let it be to me according to your word, you might fast forward a thousand years or 1,500 years or 2,000 years and say, oh yeah, look at this exciting story, the story of Jesus and Mary and the Holy Family and all of that stuff. You might be thinking that, but remember the moment that she says this, the moment that she makes herself available to God, the outcome for Mary is initially going to be an outcome of shame and disgrace because she is pregnant and Joseph, her soon-to-be husband, is not the father. And she is viewed with shame and disgrace from family and neighbors and friends pregnant. And Joseph is not the father. And the moment that you say, I'm willing to do what you want me to do, Lord. I'm willing to be the person that you want me to be and I'm willing to walk the direction that you want me to walk and I'm willing to go in the direction that you want me to go. Sometimes you're not going to be met with praise but with suspicion and aggravation and hostility. Imagine you come home and you go, I'm a Christian now. I've received Christ as my savior. I've invited him into my my life. I've submitted to him. And the the immediate response is, how do you do that? How do you go from sinner to saint just like that? Well, you're right. It required a miracle. Just like there are physical and biological laws that govern reproduction and childbirth. There are spiritual laws that govern the human soul and the human condition and the spiritual relationship to God. God is a spirit being and the Bible teaches that God loves us and wants a wonderful plan for our lives. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And when the Bible uses the term abundantly, it means a full and a meaningful life. But most people don't have a full and meaningful life. Most people aren't experiencing abundant life. They're experiencing a sin-filled life separated from God, and therefore they can't know God or experience God's love or experience God's plan. And now now we understand what Jesus meant in John 3.16 when he said, For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Paul writes, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Sin's separates us and in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 it says for the wages of sin is death which is spiritual separation estrangement there's a vast gulf between the holy self-existent perfect God and the broken 
hurt, sinful, dark, estranged human being. And Jesus will bridge that gap between the holy God and the sinful, broken person. He will lay down his life and we receive, we receive Christ by faith. The radical elimination of sin and the radical application of salvation. It's going to require a miracle. And Mary's miracle begins when she says, I'm willing to do what you want me to do. And the miracle of submission and salvation begins the moment that a human being confesses, I am willing to do what God wants me to do. I am willing to walk away from sin and I am willing to believe by faith. I am willing to believe by faith the promise that God makes in the person of Jesus. And when Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except by me. The measure of faith and the miracle of trust and belief and the miracle of the power of the Holy Spirit can overshadow you. And for the person who in their ear says, there's a voice saying to me, my sin can't go away. The Bible says you're exactly right. Your sin will never go away. Unless a miracle takes place. Unless someone is willing to take it away forever. And God's willing to do that. If you'll receive Christ right now. Through faith. Through prayer. Talking to God. You see, if you genuinely want to experience forgiveness in a new birth, God knows your heart. Your genuine desire to turn from sin and to turn to the Lord. And you might be wondering, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? How can I be sure? I I need you to understand something. From what you know about God, does he sound like he's a liar? Do you think that he makes false promises? You see, the moment that he makes a promise, he purposes to keep the promise. And that's why you can pray. With complete confidence. Something like. Dear Lord God. Thank you for Jesus. I need a miracle. The miracle of cleansing. The miracle of forgiveness. The miracle of hope. Thank you Jesus for dying on the cross. For my sins. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you that you're alive. And because you're alive. You can change me. And you can cleanse me. And you can wash me from my sins. Thank you for your willingness. And your ability. To make my sin go away. And if that prayer. Expresses the desire of your heart. If it. If it does, then the Bible says that Jesus will come into your heart because Jesus is great. 
because Jesus loves you, because he will forgive you, because he will refuse to mislead you. And the authenticity of the promise lies in his very nature. He's unwilling to lie about anything to anyone. Which means that he's unwilling to lie to you about his willingness to make your life completely different. A great God, a great miracle, and the whole world will change. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that person who genuinely wants to experience forgiveness in the new birth. Lord, I pray that they would open up their heart. Lord, I pray that they would pray that prayer. Lord, I pray that they would be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.